The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn in your New Testaments to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15 this evening. I just want to, one more time, very quickly, remind the men of the training class that will be resumed this Saturday, the 14th. encourage you to be there, and, and there are a couple of, of books that are left in the back. If you haven't got one of those, or maybe you lost yours, you can use those back there. Um, and then also, starting this Wednesday, we'll start our study on Romans and the auditorium class, and, and I believe most, if not all, have got those books written by uh, Robert Harkrider with the orange decor on those covers, and there are two more left in the back if, if you haven't yet got those. That'll be starting on Wednesday. In First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul continues his instruction that is specifically addressed toward women. And he says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. It's not uncommon to read a passage of Scripture and and to speak about a passage of Scripture, or just claim that you do believe in Scripture and submit to the fact that it is truth. And for some in the world to isolate a section or a context or one verse where they completely and totally disagree with it, and they speak evil about the Bible because of the antiquated ways that are found in its pages. And probably, perhaps, one of the greatest um, disliked passages within the New Testament, within the entirety of the Bible, is a passage like First Timothy 2 and verses 11 through 15, especially during this day and age um, with the movement of feminism and the reversal of roles within the home of the marriage relationship and so many other things, where they would read a passage like First Timothy 2 and verses 11 through 15 and completely and totally dismiss it. Even those who would claim to be Christians and would claim to be followers of God's Word, and would claim that God's Word is a treasure, would dismiss these kinds of patches, passages as irrelevant, unimportant, and their passages, they would suggest, that don't apply today. But I want us to understand that this passage was written by an inspired writer, and it is truth, just as chapter 1 was truth about the law and its purpose and the way of salvation and the fact that Paul was an example of such. It's just as important and it is just as much truth as it is in chapter 2 when he talks about prayer. And in chapter 2 when he talks about modest apparel. When he talks about elders and deacons and the church is the pillar and ground of the truth in chapter 3. So on and so forth throughout the entirety of the New Testament. It's every bit as much as a relevant passage and one we must understand, agree to, and obey as any other passage. It is certainly one that is widely misunderstood by those in the world and perhaps even among some who are members of the church. But nevertheless, it is a passage from God that is supposed to be applied by all Christians. And so I'm going to consider that, especially this evening, the God-ordained role of women. But in order to address this, I think that it's at least helpful 
to consider some preconceived ideas or some thoughts that may come up with a passage like this that the world may have. And, and they may read this passage and, and pass it off because they, they bring up these thoughts of maybe Paul was writing this because of this during that time or because of his personal preference or because of this or because of that. So first we want to address what this instruction is not about. We might read that passage. What's that about, Paul? Well, let's consider what it's not about. It is not about Paul's opinion. The Apostle Paul is not writing opinions. He never wrote opinions. No writer that is inspired of, of, of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter is ever writing their opinions. This is all from God. That's why the title of the lesson is the God-ordained role of women. Paul's not giving his opinion. Paul's opinion doesn't matter. He would tell us that his opinion doesn't matter. And he even said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, if I come, even me, and I preach something different than what I've already preached to you, I am to be a curse. Don't listen to me. Not even angel. And so Paul's not preaching or writing opinion. And his writing throughout Scripture is not opinion. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, we see that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That is, it is God-breathed. And I'm very confident that in that writing, Paul is including that very epistle he's writing and any other writing of his that he addressed to Timothy or the brethren. That it is scripture. It's God breathed. And we must take it at face value and apply it to our lives. It's profitable and it pertains to salvation. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter mentions some of the writings of Paul concerning the long suffering of the Lord. And he says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. He's speaking of Paul's writings. Notice what he does next. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. By that phrase, Peter, by inspiration, included all of Paul's writings as inspired of God, as scripture, as God's word. This is not Paul's opinion. This is God's ordinance, God's order, God's word. It's also not about misogyny. And so it's Paul's opinion, some would say, and it's Paul's opinion because Paul was a misogynist. He was a hater of women. And so we ought to dismiss this passage because it's just his opinion. And it's an opinion based on hate towards women. No, it's not. It's not Paul's opinion. And Paul was certainly not a misogynist. He didn't hate women. Much to the contrary, we read in scripture about his various praises of women. And this is Certainly not the extent of what we could consider. In Romans 16 and verse 1, he told those brethren that he commends to them Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you. Indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. He commended this woman to them, woman to them as one who would be profitable to the church there and the work of the Lord in that area. In Romans the 16th chapter in verses 3 through 4, he greets, he tells them to greet Priscilla, which is a woman, and Aquila, her husband, my fellow workers, he says, in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I gave thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. We read of Aquila and Priscilla introduced in Acts the 18th chapter as those who were in Corinth and then left from Corinth and continued with the Apostle Paul for some time. Priscilla, being a woman, was someone that was very helpful to him. He considered a fellow worker, not a subordinate worker, not, not one that was below him as, in a demeaning way, but a fellow 
worker in the kingdom and one who risked her own neck. In Philippians 4 and verse 2, two women named Euodia and Syntyche or Syntyche are exhorted by Paul to be of the same mind in the Lord. And notice what he said in verse 3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Not only does he note their spiritual equality, their names are written in the book of life, just like mine is written in the book of life, but they are fellow workers. They labored with me in the gospel. As we read First Timothy as what we're studying, we noted how Timothy's faith came about in Second Timothy, verse 5. Paul called to remembrance the genuine faith that is in Timothy, and he noted that it dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. A great faith that was imparted to Timothy ultimately through legacy and through teaching started first within two women that were very important in the spiritual upbringing of the young evangelist, Timothy. Paul is not speaking opinion. He is certainly not a misogynist. Some, though, might suggest that Paul is speaking about the culture of the time. Wherever he's writing this from or to wherever he's writing, it's about culture during that time. And that would also springboard from this idea of opinion and misogyny, that it was a misogynistic culture that Paul was a part of where women were just like like slaves that were of the same value as the dirt of the ground, and, and they were mistreated severely, and that, that's how Paul viewed it, and, and that was the culture he lived in. And so he's, he's speaking about a culture that is widely contrary to the culture we live in, where women are valued and empowered and, and seen as important figures. And so because it's a different culture, and it's certainly not a culture that should be praised, then we should reject it. Let me suggest to you, first of all, that that would be contrary to what we just noted with Paul not being a misogynist, but having a high estimation of the value of women. But secondly, we note that God's word is not something subject to culture, but it's eternal in its nature. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, he speaks of those brethren who were born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And he quotes from Isaiah saying, All flesh is as grass and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. In what way does the word of the Lord endure forever? Certainly we can bring up the evidences of God's word and all of the manuscripts that are, are supplied and provided that far exceed any other writing of antiquity that the Bible has outlasted them and they always will. No one can take the word of God from the masses. It won't happen. God won't allow, to, allow it to happen through his providence. He'll protect it. It will abide forever. But not only that, the very truth of God's word will abide forever. They can take our Bibles from us, but they can't take a conviction of our heart. They can't take us away from the obedience to God's word. And they can't take us away from the love of Christ like Romans chapter 8 speaks about. But also... There is no time, culture, or change that will ever appear within humankind that can make God's word irrelevant. Think about that. How many changes there has been within some of the lives of the very brethren that are sitting here tonight. How many changes have you seen? From just the way people think, to technology, to medicine, all of these things, all of these changes, yet the word of God is here and it's still relevant. And it proves itself to be so many times. God's word is not affected by culture. It's not changed. It can't be changed. It's going to abide forever. 
And so these words that are inspired of God that we've already noted, not Paul's opinion, certainly not misogynistic in nature, are certainly relevant today. We need to understand what they mean then and how they are relevant. I think this is also, though, a misunderstanding of the culture that Paul addresses. They might suggest that it's part of culture and it's part of culture that was demeaning to women. And so we ought to reject it today in this time. It's not right. But he wasn't writing to a culture that was demeaning toward women. He was actually writing to a culture in Ephesus whose greatest figure of praise and of adoration and respect was a woman. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul mentioned how he left Timothy in Ephesus, that he may charge some that they may teach no other doctrine. In Acts the 19th chapter, we read of Paul being in Ephesus and the fact that Demetrius the silversmith was one who was threatened about his job because Paul preached Jesus, and his job was being a silversmith, making shrines for the goddess Diana. And he stirred up the crowd in Acts 19 and verse 27, saying, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, great is Diana of, of the Ephesians. And Diana of the Ephesians would also be representative of women in general in the sense of they're to be honored and valued. That's part of the culture of Ephesus. The God they worshipped was a woman. This wasn't about culture. This wasn't about opinion. Paul is not a misogynist. Rather, this is about God's will. Just as it is in all Paul's writing, he addresses God's inspired will. He noted in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37 in a context of spiritual gifts, but also right after addressing the same subjection that women are to submit to and be a part of in their role that God has ordained. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. You can't reject this. You can't take it or leave it is what Paul is telling the Corinthians. If you think that your prophet or spiritual and what you're speaking is contrary to what I'm telling you, you better think again. Because my words are definitely the commandments of the Lord. He wasn't writing to please men. Galatians 1 and verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If, it, if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So what it is not about is opinion Paul being a misogynist or a misogynistic culture, it's about God's will which lives and abides forever. And it's relevant today. That's what the text is not about. What the text is not saying also needs to be considered as well. Because some will say, okay, well, I'll grant you that. But, but look at what the text is saying. It can't possibly be relevant. It can't possibly be God's word because of what it's saying. Look at what it's saying. It says that women were an afterthought. He says that Adam was formed first and then Eve. And they say, well, this is suggesting that women are just an afterthought. Adam was the plan, but women came after. That's not what it's saying at all. It shows an order of creation, but that does not in any way imply that women were thought of after. This was all a part of God's plan. And we read that in the beginning of count. Genesis 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. In Genesis 2 and verse 20, it says that Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. We pause there. 
Adam was created first. That's what 1 Timothy 2 and verse 13 tells us. Or verse, um, yes, verse 13 tells us. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then God observed all this like he observed every other facet of creation. And before he said, this is good, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to fix this. I'll make a helper comparable to him. Now, without ever considering the, the nature of God and how perfect God is, if someone was just reading this and didn't know anything about God, they may think that God messed up. God left something out. God created and it was inefficient or insufficient. And so he had to, to, to backtrack and, and, and cover his steps again and make sure he made up for what was lacking. But we know that's not God's nature. God is infinitely wise. He is the best planner that ever has been and ever will be. And all his plans come about perfectly, just as he intended them to come about. With that in mind, when God said it's not good that man should be alone, it wasn't that he forgot to make someone to pair up with man. And when he let Adam go throughout all the animals and, and giving them names, observe and see if there was a helper, a compar helper comparable to him, he never thought that Adam would find another helper comparable to him in all creation. And he certainly did not intend for Adam to actually try to find that. He, he's setting up this incredible situation we read about in the beginning for Adam to recognize just how empty he is without his other half. And so he takes the rib from Adam when he sleeps by by, by this divine situation and surgery, if you will, he makes woman. And then Adam said in verse 23, and you can almost see the exclamation in his words and the glory that he sees in woman. This is now bone of my bones, not of the animals of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman as he gave names to everyone else. He gives to woman because she was taken out of man. I think God's proving a point to Adam. I'm going to make you first. He could have easily made Eve right along with him. I'm going to make you first. And you're going to see the void. I need a helper. It's not good that man should be alone. It's not just something that God observed. It's something that Adam felt. And then you can see almost in your mind's eye the helplessness of Adam as he's naming all these animals. And however many animals there were, the exact number obviously we don't know at the time, and out of all of those myriad of animals, he doesn't find a helper. Now what, God? God puts him under divine anesthetic, takes his rib out, thus taking a part of him that will be rejoined in holy matrimony and creates woman. And Adam exclaims, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Thank you, God, is the context that you have given me a helper that is suitable sufficient that is like me in no way were women an afterthought this was a part of god's divine eternal plan we see that in first corinthians 11 and verse 11 where man can't live without woman in that sense woman is so important that man is lost without woman nevertheless neither is the man independent of the woman first corinthians 11 11 nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Man can't live without woman, and woman can't live without men. They are not independent from each other. And not just in the sense of that 
humankind cannot thrive and progress without the opposite sexes. Paul notes that he's an exception and some others may be an exception, not needing that fulfillment of the sexual urge in marriage and all of those things he could have gone throughout his whole life. And indeed he did not having to have a wife. He was able to live faithful to God without that. Not so with most. And certainly it is not so that mankind could live without woman and certainly not man as a male. And so women are of utmost importance and they certainly weren't an afterthought. We can note that even further in Genesis 3.15 when the prophecy of the Messiah is given for the first time when he tells the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How do we reconcile that? If women were an afterthought, but women played a significant and vital role in the bringing about of the Messiah, who was never an afterthought, how does Genesis 3.15 make any sense? Or Genesis 3.15 about the Messiah being prophesied. Women were certainly not an afterthought, especially as they play that vital role in the bringing about of the Messiah who would bring salvation to mankind. Secondly, women are not inferior to men. That's mostly the point that people draw out of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 and other passages of a parallel nature. Scripture never speaks anywhere close to that. Women are not inferior to men. Maybe different roles, as we'll note, but they're not inferior. And 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 emphasizes that. When the Apostle Peter says, Husbands likewise dwell with the wives with understanding, given honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. In the context of a woman who may be a believer, but her husband is not, and the certain difficulties and perhaps even abuse of the husband. There are abusive masters in chapter 2. There may be abusive husbands in chapter 3. How do you win them over to the gospel? With your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, your gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Husbands need to be addressed as well, though. Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't be nagging and all of this kind of stuff. Quiet and gentle and peaceable and, and chase conduct accompanied by fear. That's how you're going to win them over. But husbands, you dwell with them with understanding. The fact that the wives are supposed to be submissive to their husbands in no way permits men to be domineering. This design of authority within the headship of the husband is not about despotism. It's not about power and control. While there's certainly authority there. And in Titus chapter 2, the older women teach the younger women to be obedient to their husbands. Yes, the Bible says that. In no way does that permit the man to hold it over their heads and be terrible to their wives. And the way in which a husband can understand that and treat their wives appropriately is to realize that they are heirs together of the grace of life. Meaning you're no better than they are. Meaning they're every bit as much important in God's eyes as you are. That spiritually speaking, you're on the same plane. You may have different roles in the flesh, but spiritually speaking, you're both sons of God. That's what an heir is, a son of God. And because of that, you dwell with them in an understanding way, knowing that they are a weaker vessel. And anyone that would deny that is just naive or ignorant and is lying to themselves that women in general 
are weaker than men physically, but not only even just physically, emotions with the hormones and the chemical makeup of our bodies. God has created us differently, and the woman could rightly be described as the weaker vessel. That's why the Holy Spirit describes them as such. And you husbands, recognize that. Don't abuse them physically, certainly. Don't abuse them verbally. Don't abuse them emotionally. You dwell with them in understanding. And anyone that did otherwise would need to own up to it and repent, lest your prayers are hindered. Certainly, they're not an afterthought. Certainly, they're not inferior. Galatians 3 and verse 28 says, No longer is there Jew or Greek, slave nor free, or male or female, but you're all one in Christ. Doesn't mean that in the church you have equal roles, but you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And certainly... This is not suggesting that women cannot teach, period. It is certainly telling us that women cannot teach in a certain setting, in a certain context, but it's not at all saying that women cannot teach. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach, but it's modified. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. It doesn't say women aren't to teach. In fact, the scripture teaches contrary. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, the apostle Paul writes, these things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You might think, wait a second, that's not the verse to go to to show that women can teach, but it is. Because the men there of 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 is not aner, like in verse 8 of our context, which is males, but it's anthropos, which we already noted in previous studies means humankind. Are women able to teach? If, if he's suggesting that in no way are women ever able to teach, don't we think that he wouldn't have used anthropos? He would have used aner here. But he says, commit these to faithful human beings so they can teach others also. Are we to think that the Great Commission only pertains to men, males? Or are women supposed to take advantage of every opportunity to teach the gospel? I think the scripture tells us that male and female Christians are those who have the responsibility to teach. Titus 2 and verse 3 says that the older women are to be teachers of good things. In Acts 18 and verse 26, as Paul noted in Romans chapter 16, how beneficial and much of a help Priscilla and Aquila were, and says that Aquila and Priscilla heard, um, heard Apollos teaching, and he wasn't teaching sufficiently the word of God. He was lacking in his knowledge. So they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You may say, well, Aquila was Priscilla's husband. And so when they took him aside, Aquila and Priscilla were not both teaching, but Priscilla was sitting quiet. But it says they took him aside and explained to him that who they took him and explained. Certainly she taught Apollos along with Aquila more accurately the word of God. But what does the text say? We need to understand, especially as it pertains to that last point we made, that the text is not saying women are not allowed to teach, that it is a prohibition and it is a, a curbing of how much they can do in their God-ordained role. And so what does the text say? And we see the instruction in verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over man, but to be in Silence. Some would say, see there, it says silence. They're never even to speak a word. And there are extremists who would suggest such. Maybe less and less today, but certainly there have been and probably there still are those who 
suggests women are never supposed to speak in the context of being around men. It says, though, uh, regarding Art and Gingrich's definition of that Greek word that is translated into silence, that it is not always in totality, no noise whatsoever. He defines it as a state of quietness without disturbance, quietness, rest, the state of saying nothing or very little. It certainly could be complete silence, but not always of necessity complete silence. This word translated into silence is only found four times in the New Testament, two of which are found here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. They're to learn in silence. They are to be in silence, verse 12. The other two are in Acts 22 and verse 2, where Paul is before the Jews, and they're in such a, a great ruckus, and he begins to speak in Hebrew, so they quiet down a little. But it says in verse 2 that when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And if we looked at various translations, we would see the same kind of idea that is implied. They kept all the more silent. Were they silent before? Implied by the very words. They were a little more quiet when they heard him speak in Hebrew. Does not suggest total quietness. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, it says that those who are such, we command to exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness. That's that same work and eat their own bread. In that particular context, is speaking of those who thought the Lord had already come and so they, or, or was coming imminently. And so they said, if he's coming pretty soon, then I don't have to work at all. And, and they became busybodies and they were getting in other people's business and doing all of these things. And instead he says, you work for your own bread and be quiet. It's not saying you can't speak anymore, saying get out of people's business. Those are the people that we're being withdrawn from. It says work in quietness and eat your own bread. So it never um, necessarily indicates a totality of silence. And in fact, if we're considering the context to be within the worship assembly, and Paul's saying all women are to be silent, period, not speak at all, it contradicts the command for them to sing. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Are the women exempt from that? I think not. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart in the Lord. This is a communal effort where all who are in the assembly are singing and teaching one another through that song and praising God together and having that fellowship in spiritual matters and women, as heirs together of the grace of life, are very much included in that. And so it's not suggesting they never are to speak, but it's modified. It's a silence of submission. And so women are to be silent, it says in verse 11, with all submission. And so he also says, I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. In what way? Not teaching or having authority over a man, being in a state of submissiveness. And so this is a submissive role, he's suggesting. A submissive role, one that is not in authority. And it certainly, in this context, as well as what we see in 1 Corinthians 14, specifically pertaining to the public worship assembly. Remember we made in previous studies the point that verse 8 shows there's a transition into the public worship, at least it's implied, because he shifts from mankind in an instruction to all Christians to the males pray everywhere. They are leading in prayer. They're leading in worship. That's an authoritative role. Women are not to take that role, which is why he specifies aner, male, and not anthropos, human beings or humankind. We see the same thing, though, in 1 Corinthians 14, and it's reinforced when in verse 34 he says, let your women keep silent in the churches. What do you mean by churches? 
Paul, verse 23, explains what he means in context. Therefore, verse 23, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed and unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And so it's a context where the whole church, not Bible classes, where there's a segregation into different groups, but we've all come together assembling as a body, man, woman, and child. And when the whole church comes together, let the women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive as the law also says and if they want to learn something let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church not singing not total silence but not addressing the church in an authoritative role that's the context of spiritual gifts where where there were those who were christians in corinth who had spiritual gifts and the problem was that they were speaking over one another and addressing the assembly and it wasn't the problem that they, they were addressing the assembly that they shouldn't have been doing that the women certainly are in that context but that they were speaking over one another so don't have there be any confusion you should understand it or else there's no edification but he does address this maybe there is a woman who does have a spiritual gift and i think there's an abundance of evidence to that in the 11th chapter of first corinthians And in other places of scripture where there are prophetesses, and if they have a spiritual gift, let not the women speak in the church, for it's shameful. They're to be in silence and all submission. They're not to address the assembly in an authoritative way. And so it's not saying silence in general, that they're never to speak in the presence of men. Certainly not, God forbid, but not in an authoritative way and in that directive way. And certainly not in the assembly as they address the congregation. But I want us to suggest and understand, though, that the very reason that we're about to look at for their submissive role before men and before God shows that it's not simply the public assembly where this is applied. Certainly women can speak and they can speak even in the presence of men, although not addressing the public worship assembly. That would be shameful, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, and certainly sinful as it's in rebellion to their God-given role. But they're always to be in that submissive role amongst men. And the scripture bears this out plainly and clearly. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, the apostle Paul said, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. He does not say this is only pertaining to the worship assembly. But as it pertains to the very reason in our text, the order of creation and the matter of transgression. The order of creation and the matter of transgression, as it's alluding to the beginning, as he noted Adam and Eve in verse 12, does not pertain simply to the worship assembly, but to creation, period. To the creation of male, to the creation of female. He says, first, Adam was formed first, then Eve. I want us to notice that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, as we already noted, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. So he took the rib out of man and made woman. Adam was formed first, then Eve. We noted that doesn't mean she's inferior. It actually, if anything, emphasizes her value and importance. But Adam was indeed formed first. In 1 Corinthians 8 or 11 in verse 8, it says that man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And I want us to note that. Why was woman created? Because it's not good that man should be alone, so God said, I'll make a helper comparable to him. Helper does not imply authority, it implies submission. Who's being helped? The man, not the woman. I'm not suggesting there's no 
give and take. I'm not suggesting that there's there's no mutual advantage and benefit for women and men, but it certainly is not the case in Genesis chapter 2 that the woman was, or the man was created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And in that very idea of being a helper is the implication of submission, which is what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2. But he also says this, Adam was formed first but and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In what way is the matter of transgression a reason for, logically, the submissive, the submission and the submissive role of women. Well, it's not because Adam was guiltless. He does not say that Adam was not guilty. Adam was just as guilty as the woman. I would suggest, if not more so, because Adam knew. It says Adam wasn't deceived. The woman was deceived. It doesn't excuse her sin, but she was deceived. The devil was crafty and deceived the woman. doesn't say Adam was. Adam knew better, in other words. But he sinned anyway. But it's in that context, again, of authority and leadership. And that's exactly what we see went wrong in the Genesis account. In Genesis 3 and verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. But she didn't stop there. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 12 continues, when Adam was hiding and he asked if, and God asked if he ate of the tree that God commanded him not to, he said this, not... Not something that suggests it's okay to give an excuse for our sin, that that Adam was right in saying this, but there was truth in it. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. That's exactly what happened. And then in verse 17, we see in God's words a little bit more about this. He said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, how and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, curses the ground. That word heeded, is defined by vine as to hear, hearken, listen, obey. In fact, in 81 places in the Old Testament where that Hebrew word is given, it means obey, and that's the exact context here. You heeded your wife, the voice of your wife, in what way? And have eaten of the tree. She said, here, eat of this, and you obeyed her. That's the point. In the context of 1 Timothy 2 being authority and submission, He's saying the reason the woman is in submission and in that role of submission is because she took the leadership role back in the beginning and the consequences were dire. Sin entered the world. Adam was just as guilty, but it was in part a result of her getting into that role of Lord, usurping that role and getting out of her God-given role of helper, which is submissive, in its very nature. I want us to notice the consequence of this in Genesis 3 and in verse 16, where God told the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain you shall bring forth children. And he also says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. We'll see the first part in a minute, but notice the desire for be shall your, for will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word desire as Albert Barnes comments, means in general turn, determination of the will. The determination of thy will, he says, shall be yielded to thy husband, and accordingly he shall rule over it. The pulpit commentary explains, it is better taken as expressive of the deferential submissiveness. Your desire shall be for your husband's will. You submit to your husband's will. Titus 2, teach the young women to be obedient to their own husbands. A deferential submissiveness. And we might wonder, why though is God saying this when that was her original place? How is this a punishment? I want to suggest to you it's like 
telling a child, don't do this, don't do this, and you may not give them a reason. They may ask, why are you telling me not to do this? Because I'm mom or I'm dad and I say so. And they do it anyway and something bad happens. Maybe don't touch the stove. They touch the stove. They got burnt. You didn't tell them they'd get burnt, but you told them not to touch the stove. And you reaffirm it to them. Don't touch the stove. I said it once. I'll say it again. Don't touch the stove. And that may be a terrible example. But as the pulpit commentary more aptly puts it, it's a confirmation and perpetuation of that authority which has been assigned to the woman at the creation. You're a helper, not a Lord. Look what happened. Again, you're a helper, not a Lord. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall be Lord over you. And also she was put in the role of being a child bearer. Again, wasn't that always her role? Be fruitful and multiply. Who's going to bear children. It was never that the men were bearing children. It's not that Adam was going to bear children, but because Eve messed up and Adam messed up, that now Eve has to bear children. That's not the point. But there's a difference. Now you'll bear children in pain. In your conception or pregnancy, there will be pain. In the birthing, there will be pain and danger and loss of life. Why? Because Eve took of the fruit, ate, and then gave to her husband. I want us to note, though, this last point that is made in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He gives a promise. You may be in a role of submission, ultimately as a consequence of the first woman's sin. But that doesn't mean you're inferior. It means you're in a different role, a role of submission, not authority. But you're not inferior. If you were inferior, you would not have the hope that the man has. But he says this. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Again, this is not simply the punitive measure of Genesis 3, verse 16. Certainly now childbearing is painful. There is danger and pain that goes along with this. But her role as childbearer was, I would suggest to you, part of her submissive role as the helper. In Genesis chapter 1 God gives that first command, I think, in, in Genesis 1 with regard to his command to be fruitful and multiply. And we see later on in Genesis when men built the, the Tower of Babel, included in that command is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in the Tower of Babel, they were all wanting to stay in one place and there was despotism that was born. And part of the reason of their transgression there was that they stayed in one place. They didn't fill the earth. They didn't spread out. And here you have this expectation to fulfill that command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. How am I going to do that? Adam's without woman. He's, he doesn't have a helper comparable to him. Am I going to mate with the animals? There's not a helper comparable to him. God makes woman. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. There's a lot of science there, really. And we understand it by faith. Part of her submissive role was the role of childbearing. And he says, even in that role of submission and in all the pain that it comes with, you'll still be saved if you follow through with the conditions that are the same conditions of man. Again, she is a fellow heir, but she must follow the conditions and they're not any different from the man. Some specifically are. Man is not in a role of submission. For that role to be reversed, it's not just sinful for the woman to, to wear the pants and be the authority in the home. It's sinful for the man to submit in that way. That's not God's design. It's unnatural and it's contrary to God's will. 
And so there may be some specific things that are different within our given roles that she has to be faithful to. But in general, be faithful to God's word. Continue in faith, love, holiness, and maintain self-control. And that's the very context of this epistle we see. Chapter 1 and verse 5. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. For who? For all. In verse 14, Paul is given as an example that the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. How? With faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He had faith and he showed his love to God in Christ Jesus. And in that way, the grace of God was multiplied to him through salvation. Verse 16. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me, first Christ Jesus might be shown as a pattern, or might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe for him on him for everlasting life. That's how men are saved, even those or of the female kind. Chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How are we saved? Coming to the knowledge of the truth. You will be saved, he's saying to women, if you follow the conditions. Maybe in a submissive role, but don't think you're inferior. Don't think you're, you're less important. Don't think you're not an heir. But persist and endure in faithfulness. And this, of course, as I alluded to, would require a submission to her God-given Role In Numbers 16 and verses 8 through 11, you have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who were given a God-given role. And it may have been more submissive than that of Aaron and Moses. Aaron was high priest. Moses was the prophet who would lead the people. He was the leader of Israel, God through him. And yet they rebelled against their God-given role as those of the house of Levi that would, would uh, serve in the tabernacle. And they were punished for doing so. In Jude 11, it speaks of those false teachers who would perish in the rebellion of Korah. And so women... Part of their faithfulness is submitting to their God-given role. Very quickly, the applications of this are very easily seen. Women must learn, just like men, but they must learn in submissiveness. You know, in 1 Corinthians 14, 35, it says, don't ask questions except to your husbands at home. You know, if women were to be completely silent, it wouldn't be very easy for them to learn because a fundamental way to learn is to ask questions. Jesus did that in Luke chapter 2 at the temple, and he asked questions and answered questions throughout his ministry. That's how we learn. But you don't address the assembly in an authoritative way asking those questions, as is likely what was being done in 1 Corinthians 14. You can learn, and they must learn, but in a submissive role. Women can teach, but they can never teach as one who is over a man and as one in authority over a man. That would forbid teachers of women or, or women teachers in the presence of men. It would forbid women leading Bible studies or any other spiritual matter with, women, with men being present. It would include women preachers and women worship leaders, so on and so forth, that are so prevalent even in liberal churches of Christ today. That is contrary to what we see here. Women can teach, but they can only teach other women, young women, children, and they can only correct in a submissive way like Priscilla in Acts the 18th chapter. And there is a way of doing it or else Priscilla was out of line. Women must accept their God-given role, not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans 12 and verse 2 says. And lastly, women must be faithful. And we'll say this, that women must have their own faith. God ordained that men, the husbands, be in the role of authority and be the spiritual leaders. But that does not mean that women follow blindly and that if their husbands are faithful, that somehow they'll get to heaven based on their husband's faith. We saw in 1 Peter 3 that there may be women who are Christians, but their husbands are not Christians. They can get to heaven even if their husband doesn't. But there may be women who are Christians and their husbands are Christians, but they're not as invested as their husbands. And if they don't change and if they don't devote themselves to God 
and they're not faithful themselves, their faith, the faith of their husband can't get them to heaven. And so women must be faithful to God, and especially in that submissive role as it pertains to the context. Let's understand the clarity of God's word on such subjects that may be difficult due to preconceived notions and, and opinions and ideas, understanding that God is the one who speaks truth, and it is to him that we must submit. Let us try to and strive to be faithful in all matters and, and fulfill our roles the best we can. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to give you the invitation to do so, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And if you have obeyed the gospel and there's some spiritual matter that we can't assist you with, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.